my name is Nina Buser. I work with Radius International. My husband, Brooks, and I worked over in Papua New Guinea for 13 years, and we planted a church among the Yambiyami people group. And today we have a guest here with us, Emily Bennett. Yeah, like Nina said, my name's Emily Bennett. Um, I'm currently living in Cedarville, Ohio. My husband's a professor there. He teaches missions and theology. And we served in North Africa and the Middle East for about seven years before we returned to Ohio. I work with a organization that helps immigrants and refugees transition to life in the States. I have three kids. They are currently nine, eight, and seven. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nina. Oh, we're so glad you're here, Emily. Some of the things that I think are going to be helpful for people watching this would be to understand what your role um, as a wife and a mother is and as females like what does it look like overseas I hear that all the time when I'm talking with women what does it look like to be a woman on the mission field and so I would love just to hear a little bit of your background Mm -hmm. where you guys um, what you were doing Mm -hmm. in North Africa and um, how that played into your roles as a wife and a mom so we can just start with your background first So my husband and I moved around the year 2010 to the Middle East, and we ended up getting rerouted. Um, Our original plan was to go to one location in North Africa. And because of the Arab Spring and a number of different political revolutions, we ended up in a different location. We spent a couple years learning language language and culture, and honestly, it was a really good time just to get our feet underneath us and to get a lay of the land of what does it even look like to live in the Middle East and to love people and to serve people well. And so we spent a couple years there before we moved to a different location. Um, And while we when we moved to the second location, we had to start a business. Um, We needed a viable reason to be in the country. And honestly, Nina, we were really convicted that we, if we were gonna be in a place, we wanted to actually be doing what we had told the government we were doing. And so we started a business. Um, We it was a super unique um, idea, never been done before, but we started an English language school, which, um, wow, yeah, That's super unique. Um, but it served, our goal was to be able to meet as many p- people as possible and to have access to different groups of people. And it honestly served that need. Um, we would have between, I don't know, different times between 50 and 100 people in our school. And so we were able to Um, teach them and do it well, do it with integrity and excellence. And then also at the same time, we also had opportunity to, to talk to these people, to go out for coffee afterwards, to be in their homes, to have them in our homes. Um, And so that's a lot of what our life looked like was both working the platform that we, um, that we said we were doing um, and also just spending time with, um, with North Africans. Okay. Well, I'm curious. So let's back up to the part where you were learning language and culture. Okay. So at this point, did you have kids with you on the field or was it just you and your husband at this point? Yeah, good question. So we went overseas and we did not have any children. Um, So we went overseas just married um, and we had been married for quite a while. And so we had zero children when we when we came. And then by the time that we ended up leaving, we had three. Okay. so anyway. So when you were doing culture and language acquisition, was that like a full-time job for you? It definitely was. So we were learning Arabic. And um, honestly, I think with any language learning process, like when you hit the ground, um, probably the greatest thing you can do is just to dive into culture and language ASAP. Um, I noticed the more I knew and the more I understood culturally and also linguistically, the more I started to love it. And I think that... um, 
that's a huge piece. I think if people wait, it takes a lot more, it takes a lot longer to adjust, um, to make good friends, to actually do the work that you're there, um, that you want to do while you're there. And so we dove in and I think a lot of that was honestly easy for us because we were both hundred percent sold on what we were doing. And so we both were in full-time language. Um, when we were not in language classes, we were looking for every opportunity that we could to use it. And honestly, Nina, we, um, when we were living in the Middle East doing language, there was a lot more unique opportunities to use it. Um, we joined clubs. I think at one point we, we had joined a fast walking club. And so at night we would just put on little yellow vests and like walk around the city. And honestly, it was, awesome. it was probably painful <laughs> for the people that we were walking with. Cause we would be like, that is a cat. Like, look at the cat run, you know, and things like that. But it was those kind of things that we forced ourselves to do that we could see long-term, like had so much value because it was awkward. It was probably awkward, awkward for the people that were there, sure. but it forced us just to be using what we were learning. Um, and so I'm grateful that we just made ourselves do it. Wow. That's amazing. So you went to school during the day and then the evenings you were filled, filled with basically... Like, um, trying to use all the things that you'd learned during the day. Yeah. That's amazing. And Nina, I like look back at that time and some of it while we were in it, the amount of times like it just, we just spent sitting in a home and absolutely like having the most awkward tea times with ladies. Um, it, I mean, that's what we did. We just sat there and pointed out words that we knew and over time, um, by the Lord's grace, honestly, our language grew and we were able to actually have meaningful conversations. So yeah, that's what, that's what our language learning time looked like. And I think in some ways I had a vision before we left that it would just come, that it would come easily. And language learning is a slow, sometimes very painful process, yes. but it's very worth doing. <laughs> yes. I often describe it as beating your head against a wall because yeah. it's just daily and you have to choose to do it. Yes. Um, did you ever feel like it was hard to find people to um, befriend or practice your language with? Sometimes I know language helpers yeah. can be scarce yeah. and I didn't know if that was something that you had to, like was hard for you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we, we went to a little bit more formal schools in the setting that we were in. So finding that language person to help us, yeah. help, help us grow our language skills was not difficult. I think finding patient friends sure. that were willing, um, just to suffer, uh, suffer with us as we practiced, um, where we were, I, I can't even say it was really difficult. People were so gracious to us. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, not a difficult thing for us. I know that's not God's experience though. Yeah. Well, there's also peace in being where God has you. I yeah. think. And even though someone else might look at that as difficult when you're in the midst of it, I think that we find peace in it because that's where we're supposed, we're supposed to, to be. be. Yep. So for sure. <laughs> um, okay. So then you move to your second context mm -hmm. and tell me about that transition. Cause I know you um, had mentioned that you decided to start a business and yeah, figuring out what kind of business to do. And mm -hmm. I, I know when you look back and tell a story, you kind of give quick little snippets of things, but right. there's really a lot of agonizing and praying and yeah. all the things that go into that when you're looking at location and how to even have a viable way to stay there. Right. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. Um, I think just to back up a little bit more, honestly, our church had a very huge role in helping us decide what our end context was going to be. Um, so our 
our home group had asked us very specific, like had asked a group of people that were planning on going overseas to go to this specific location. So actually figuring out where to go was not very hard for us just because I feel like we were really following the guidance of our pastors. Um, And so we ended up where we were just out of following the direction of our leadership. Um, But what that actually looked like when we got on the ground was was pretty difficult. Um, I think because there was so much political unrest rest in the time that we went um, and also from the specific organization that we had went with, a lot of people had been asked to leave. And so we knew once we got there, we had to, like, our time was ticking and we had to get our business started and we really had to get our feet underneath us very quickly. And so for better, for worse in the culture that we were in, um, it was really my, it was really Matt's, my husband's responsibility to get this business started. And so we always joke that it probably shaved years off the end of his life because it was such a stressful process. Um, but anyway, that I would, would almost equate like language learning as well as setting up a viable platform or a viable reason to be in a place as of equal importance because he had to do the hard labor of getting this thing started, he and our, our teammates. Um, but once it was started, how just the fact that we were able to invite other teammates, honestly invite national partners into this business um, and give them a viable way to stay in a country that, yeah, yeah, that is a closed country. It was so worth the work that was put into it initially. Um, And I think honestly, Nina, it was different than we expected. Like I just thought like, okay, before, before a lot of our training, I just thought, okay, we go overseas, we quick learn language, and then we start cheering, and then people convert, and then churches start, you know? Right. But there's so much hard groundwork that especially if you're going to a, into a context and there's really no workers that have done the work for you beforehand, um, no one is telling you what to do. Like, you are the ones, like, looking at, okay, where do I go to get the stamp that I need to do the next step in this process that's really difficult? Or what bank do I have this money transferred? I don't know. Am I signing this? Do I know what I'm signing? It's in a different language. And so there's just so many um, kind of grueling aspects to uh, the start, I guess, language and business startup that I think the time, initially it does not feel worth it to put the time and energy into it. But now after having done it and seen the long-term fruit that can be produced out of doing it well at the beginning. I'm really thankful we did it that way. I'm thankful my husband did it that way. Yes. <laughs> and you couldn't really do um, the business part of it if you didn't have the language fully exactly. done either. And exactly. so that's just such a huge, like you said, groundwork and building block to what you need to keep to get to the n- next part of pressing into building relationships with people and having that business. I can't even imagine how much work that was to start that. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So you were in a Muslim context. I was, yep. What was that like for you as a woman? I Mm -hmm. know I hear a lot of, um, you know, you hear a lot of negativity about the Muslim culture. Um, I'm sure there are things that are warm about it as well. Yeah. Um, But as a woman, what is that like in a male-dominated society? I think that a question I am often asked is like, is there actual meaningful work that women can do in the Middle East, North Africa context? And it's so funny because I think once I was there, there was so much meaningful work to be done that it was something that didn't even cross my mind. Um, 
as far as who we worked with, honestly, Matt, I worked with women, Matt worked with men, um, and it was pretty segregated until we became friends with families together. But how eager women, like I had tons of students who were women and how eager they were to sit in my home or to sit in coffee shops and um, to, for me to hear their stories, for them to hear my stories. Um, it was, I honestly felt like there was more to be done than what our team could do. And so I think that misconception that like, okay, the Middle East or North Africa is like kind of a man's field that they're the people that should be going. Um, Matt would never been, been able to reach 50% of the population. I mean, 50% yeah. of them are women. Um, and so we saw the Lord working in a ton of women's lives. And honestly, it was something that we often commented, like women at the time that we were there just were very receptive to hearing, to dialoguing about spiritual things. And then we had a lot more women respond to like, Hey, okay, do you want to read the scriptures with us? Like, is this something that you want to do? And like them being agreeable to that. And so, yeah, as for women thinking about going overseas and going to the Middle Eastern context, I would say like, know your team well, know, know for sure that they value you as a woman and the work that you can do. Um, and then you'll have a lot more work to do than you probably have time to do. Yeah. So that is, really amazing because in our context we were adopted into clans and so mm -hmm. we kind of had an in through that um, but you're starting from like just coming in there and yeah. not knowing anybody and then having to develop friendships what was that like how did you what is the process of developing a friendship overseas look like for you yeah um a lot of it for us very specifically was um, initially knowing our neighbors and that's that's a piece of it I would say I think knowing your neighborhood and sharing with your neighbors um, there is an expiration date to that just in the fact that you can meet them and hang out with them but they're also you have to have ways and access to other people and so really our my access to women was all filtered through the school and so we tried to build the platform in a way where we could bring in extra help. So we weren't constantly teaching. That wasn't something that we were always like every day, every like eight hours a day doing. Right. But we tried to develop in a way where, hey, if I was in if I was in the classroom six hours, like six hours a week or 10 hours a week, I would have these other hours where the focus of my work was pouring into people or meeting with women, talking with women. And so alongside of that, um, I... I kind of accepted my, like, I was a foreigner and they were intrigued by who I was and they wanted to know why I was there. And so I used that. Um, and so a lot of times I would just end up going out for coffee because people were so interested in like, okay, we all want to go where you live. Right. Like, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. And so um, I capitalized on that. Um, and so I think we ended up just through the relationships we met through the school um, we were able to meet, hang out, have coffee with women. Um, and so that's what building relationships look like a lot. I think also there was an element of, um, I just tried a lot of different things. Like I said yes to a lot of women. I tried my best, especially in the time period. We had a season where we didn't have kids before we started having kids. Um, and I just met with a lot of women and asked a ton of questions. Um, and so building relationships in with females in North African, Middle Eastern context was not difficult at all. So that's amazing. Um, well, you brought up the talk about kids. What yeah. was that like having kids on the field? Did you have them there in mm -hmm. country? 
So we um, we have three kids, and our oldest was born um, in North Africa, and our middle was born on a furlough, and our third, we kind of had this strange accidental American birth. <laughs> it was supposed to be born overseas, but anyway, the Lord had other plans. Uh, we were cutting the old plane tickets a little bit too. Oh, got it. Too short. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so we went from being kind of footloose, fancy free and going really hard to, um, together as a couple to, um, having children and also having a lot more structure put into our life because, um, we had children overseas and honestly, they were a gift to us. I think, um, in my experience, Nina, maybe you had something different, but I, I feel like workers are two extremes a lot of times. Like they either go probably way too hard and are going to struggle with burnout at some point or else maybe like retreat a, a bit too much. Um, and so kind of need to push in the direction of working hard. And so I think we probably fell a little bit too much on the let's go as hard as we can. And so having kids was a sweet gift of being like, okay, we need to reorder our life in a way that's sustainable. Um, and so our daughter really brought that into our life. Um, so we had our first child probably about uh, 18 to two, 18 months to two years. Um, yeah, something like that. Close. I, I'm forgetting the timeline, but she was born overseas and, um, and honestly, Arabs love children, absolutely love children. And so, uh, harassment harassment is a big problem in the Arab world but it was so funny because some of the men that had probably harassed me as I walked up and down the street now that I had a kid were like oh my goodness you're amazing you're a princess thank you for bringing us you know wow. bringing this beautiful baby in the world so anyway it uh it was a gift because it provided structure and also um just gave another connection point because Arabs love children so much Yes, I feel like kids can be such a huge um, door opener mm -hmm. in any culture. For sure. There's things you can relate to as other moms about. I mean, I remember some of the first things I learned in our language was, is your kid sick? How long have they been sick for? Yeah. <laughs> Are yeah, they still yeah. sick? Yeah. <laughs> um, just talking about things as moms, I think, is a huge way to get to know other people. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about, okay, so you had your first daughter when you were there for two years, what was that like going from having like your own schedule basically yeah. to having to, I mean, I know you said it was a blessing yeah. to have her, of course mm -hmm. it was, but, um, to know that your time is not your own. How did you exactly. balance your time? Yeah. Because that's one of the things I get a lot as well is yeah. how do you balance a time be your time between being a wife and a mom and a worker exactly. overseas? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think one thing that was very good was my husband really, really valued the work that I could do that he could not do. And so we really tried to see, you know, when you go overseas, like you are the schedule uh, scheduler of your time. Really no one outside of our business and the times that we had to, to teach, like it's a gift to be able to be like, okay, no one is telling us we have to be at our job at eight, you know, eight in the morning. And so we really tried to balance the times that women went out, like Matt was home with our daughter, um, the times that it was more natural for him to go out with men, you know, I was home. And we also tried to take advantage of the fact that where we were, people didn't really do anything in the mornings. It was such a night culture. And so a lot of where here in the States, like we, we value that five o'clock to 8.30 at night right. time period. We kind of tried to flip it and value it in the morning because our evenings look so different. Yeah. 
And so um, I think it, the two biggest things were my husband prioritized what he knew he could not do that I could do and made it a point to really say like, no, you need to be out like out with women because we are both hired to do this job and we're both parents to Annabelle. Um, and so, yeah. And so I think that is a unique challenge and a gift that overseas life provides is that he honestly, probably more so than when we transitioned to life back here in the States, he got to be a huge part of her growing up years, um, those little years, in a way that honestly, if he worked an eight to five in the States, he he wouldn't have. Um, and so that was a huge gift. But also, um, yeah, we both got to do the work that we went out to do. And so that is one thing that a lot of times when married couples come and are like, okay, how do we do this? I like always am saying like, hey, you're not a spouse of a, of a missionary. Like you are both going to be sent out. And while in different seasons, that might look different. Like when we initially had, at one point we had a two-year-old, a one-year-old and a newborn. And so what that looked like is I went and taught one night a week. I taught a Sunday night evening class and that is where I would meet new people. And, um, and a lot of times, like there was times where, okay, we're going to meet with this girl. So we're taking all the kids, you know, or, Hey, this, we're probably going to have like an actual Bible study. So I'll either bring a baby. And so just trying to prioritize, okay, like how, how can we effectively do this and not think it has to look a certain way, um, or that ministry has to look a very specific way. And we tried to be creative and flexible with what it looked like. And honestly, it was messy. Like there was some times that I can look back and be like, Oh, we should have done, you know, this part of her growing up years differently or, like all three of our kids growing up years differently. But honestly, there's, I mean, there's grace for those moments. And also um, we're thankful we got to do their little years, um, kind of really tag teaming it back and forth. It was fun. That is a sweet thing. Um, I Yeah, I hear you on the eight to five thing. I mean, when you parent together mm -hmm. and you, in our context, we didn't have any stores to go to or place yeah. to go other than yeah. the village and then our house. Um so it was a little bit different in that, but mm -hmm. it was so sweet too. Um, mm -hmm. The days are full of mm -hmm. family and fellowship and being with um, the people that you're working with and ministering to. But I also know that it you have to be intentional with yes. your days. Yeah. Otherwise, you can just fill them with the things that being a mom and a wife are. I mean, yeah, that's just sure. easy. You can do, can always clean your house more or cook more more meals or exactly you know spend more time with your kids and so that push to make sure that you're doing what you're there to do yeah but also you're handling what you're you're given to handle as well what the yeah. lord has given you in your family and so that is definitely a very big balance and i yeah. think flexibility is a like you said is a big thing in that um you just have to schedule have a rough schedule and then be willing to die to it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and be flexible because yeah. sometimes there's things that come up that all of a sudden here's a cultural event that you're going to go to yeah. when you were supposed yeah. to be cleaning your house that day or there's nobody around. So mm -hmm. I was wanting to get more language today and that's yeah. not happening. And yeah. so I got to figure out something else to do. And so I think um, that's one thing I always tell the students is, you got to have a schedule and then you got to be flexible in it yeah. and you, you have to have purpose to your right. days. Right. And yet also give them over to the Lord. Yeah. Yes. It is a fine <laughs> balance. 
one thing I'm really happy that we did was um, we had all of our kids in like a local preschool. And so that even three days a week for three to four hours, that pushed them to make little um, little Arab friends that they loved. Uh, and it also honestly gave me a little bit more time just to either focus on language or go out with girls. Um, and so I think that is also a piece that I, I think is honestly a contested issue among workers overseas is like, how do we handle school? How do we handle how much our kids are in culture versus schooling them at home? And so that was a real sweet piece that we look back on those. All three of them went through this little nursery and it was such a sweet gift that we had a great preschool and also they had peers, sure, <laughs> you know, peers and little friends. Yeah. It's amazing what they can pick up, too, mm -hmm. language-wise. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I remember Bo would come in, and sometimes I'd be like, oh, no, you can't say that. <laughs> yes. Don't yeah. say that. Yeah. It's bad. Sure. Sure. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you say were things that kept you encouraged? Because I know we all go through seasons um, feeling lonely, hmm. isolated, away from family, yeah. Sometimes those little lies can creep in. Um, mm -hmm. What were things that you would say kept you going. encouraged and kept you going? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, simple, obvious thing would just be before before you go, while you're there, like your source is your time in communion with the Lord. And so I think... Just keeping that as, hey, this is this is my priority, whether I feel like it or not. I need to be spending time in prayer. I need to be spending time in the Word every day. Um, that's, I think, probably the biggest one. I think the other piece was I really asked for a lot of different literature. So if I had friends back at home okay. who were coming or taking a visit or if my parents came to see us, I would always ask, like, okay, I've been, like, seeing things on this book or this author and so I'd often have people bringing over books um, or different studies that I could just personally do. And honestly, we had um, we had a really great team. And so I think if if we look back and just kind of talk about the events that happened in the seven years while we were overseas, they don't sound like super positive, uplifting events. But we can look back at that time and be like, okay, we have nothing but fond memories. And also we would say the overall time period was awesome. And I think a lot of that we can attribute to, we had a really solid team that agreed theologically and missiologically, and we were on the same trajectory. And it looked different throughout different seasons. We had a lot of, our platform um, was such that we had a lot of people that would come for three, three months to two years. And so the dynamics of what our team looked like were different, but we filtered people before they came and we said a lot of strategic no's to who were who was joining our team and a lot of strategic yeses and so because we chose to do that um we had a great teaming experience honestly and so the people that were put around us on our team i would say were incredibly encouraging to us the entire time that we were there and honestly the people we were with for the majority of the time are still some of our best friends and we love them so i love that Awesome. Yeah, you do go really close together for sure. Everything yeah. we would not be where we are today without our teammates too. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, as far as um, team-wise, how did you juggle that as well? I know that's another thing that you have to add into your life 
as far as caring for your teammates. So you have your husband, you have your kids, you have the people that you're ministering to, and then you have your teammates. How do you, um, how would you make sure that you were encouraging your teammates along the way as well? Did you have set times to get together every week? Yeah. And we, um, we had just said that as, as a team, we were covenant together as church. And so we did church together every single week. And so that was a time that we would just spend probably about six hours together weekly. Um, I never tried to undervalue my need for friendship. And so I'm a super social outgoing person. And so I knew I needed local friends. I knew I needed, um, near cultural, culture friends. And so it, it wasn't hard. Like when I, when I would walk home for some of the single gals on our, on our team, I would make sure that I was calling them every day just to be like, Hey, you might go home to an empty apartment, but like, I want to have a touch point where I know you're speaking English and I know that you're at least getting 20 minutes just to debrief. And so I really tried to use those filler time periods. If, if my kids were napping, um, I would have a couple girls in my house. And so, um, yeah. So I try to use a little filler time periods throughout the day where there is space, especially when I had young kids, um, to make team and make, uh, just encouraging other girls on my team with learning. Uh, so, but that piece honestly was a joy for me. It was not a burden, um, but it was definitely a joy. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned, um, about, well, how do I phrase this? I, what I would love to know is your about your identity as a Christian overseas. Mm-hmm. What did that look like for you? Were you able to be upfront about your Christianity and your belief yeah. in Christ? Or were you, um, is it something that you had to be careful of? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, honestly, we tried within probably the first time we would meet with someone to to tell them very frankly, like, hey, I am a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. And it wasn't something that necessarily, like they would have thought it would, thought it odd had we not been upfront about that. And I think in the context of where we were, religion permeated everything. And so it was in their speech. It was in, you know, the way that they prayed, everything like that. And so it was really something within probably the first 10 to 15 minutes of a conversation. I really tried to use that as an opportunity to be like, okay. I became a Christian, um, which in, in their context was so foreign, just because you were born into a family and whatever family you were born into, that is what you were. And so emphasizing the fact that, okay, I would, I was not always this. And it was a point in my life where the Lord met me and changed my life and transformed my heart. And I, I made a choice to follow, um, follow God in this way. And so we really use that as really a jumping off point in conversations with girls, um, and I would say my husband did this with men was just to emphasize, no, like our, our identity looks very different. Um, and, and it was something I think because locals saw us in community together, they saw that the way, the way that we related to each other was so different than, than how they related to family or friends. And so it was a question that quickly came. Um, and so we were pretty open about our identity and who, of who we were in Christ um, we leaned a lot more into our job and what we were actually doing as far as our identity there and why we were there. Okay. So that gave you a purpose to be there. Because mm-hmm. I know you mentioned um, that a lot of people were getting kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so was that something that was kind of always looming over you? It for sure was. Um, and I think in context, especially 
closed countries, I think you can stay a long time until fruit starts to be born. And I think it's in those, it's in those seasons and situations where fear set in because, um, because to some degree, if, if nothing's happening, if people aren't changing, like, honestly, if you're quiet about your witness of the gospel, like you can stay for a really long time, but that's also not, it's not why you're there. It's not why, yeah, it's not why we're, why we went. And so anyway, I don't necessarily think that we had to be careful as far as who our identity was, as far as our job goes and our purpose there. Um, we were always honest. That was a piece that we were, we were never going to try and be deceitful about what we were doing in the sense of our job. Um, but who we are, who we were in Christ and the fact that we were following him was not something that we really ever tried to hide. Okay. Yeah. So when you, I actually don't even really know this part of the story, but, um, how was it that you ended up coming back to the States? States. Yeah. Yeah. So we had really kind of come to a crossroads of um, our teammates who we had been with for a really long time. We're taking a different job in a different city. And we had kind of come to this point where the load of all of the teaching and all the responsibilities of our center were going to be back on both of our shoulders and just kind of seeing, okay, that was going to require like a, us doing that all the time. So the purpose of why we were going to be there was going to be diminished significantly for a very significant period of time. Um, when we saw that, we really tried to push on a lot of different doors as far as platform opportunities went. And we could just see like door after door get closed. Um, and I honestly, it was a bit disheartening for us just because we're like, okay, we're, we are very willing to stay and open to staying, but also we wanted like our next step to be clear. And so if we were going to take a, a move organizationally or even into a different city, we just, we wanted to be clear and it was tricky for us, I think, because we're both super decisive people and kind of like, if we think this is the next step, let's just do it. Um, and so we just came up with a, a lot of no's, honestly. And so we spent together, we spent about six months where we would just take one week in the month um, be because I think when you feel transition is on in like in the future, it's easy just to think about what it is and yeah. obsess about it. And so we were really trying to prevent doing that. And so we would say one week in a month, we're going to fast and pray about this and have a conversation about it, ask the Lord for guidance, and then, and then not talk about it and live where we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so during that time period, we, um, we saw a lot of no's, like I said, but then also um, just were asking for guidance and, uh, someone, a very influential person in our life, um, emailed us one day, kind of in the middle of this process. And we're like, Hey, you don't know about the school out in the middle of Ohio, but I just mentioned your name to this person. So, um, they would love to see, like meet you and talk, talk specifically to Matt. And so honestly, we're like, they're never going to hire you. Like <laughs> you're from nowheresville. Like you hadn't even, he hadn't finished his PhD at that point. And so we had prayed very, like specifically, like just have them not hire us if this is not the next step. And um, the more after he had interviewed and after um, he had visited, he was pretty, he was quite confident, like this was the next step in life. And I think, Nina, the one thing that we saw on the field, and this is kind of what something that Matt says all the time, that we learned when we were in seminary together, we learned um, tons of awesome theological concepts. And we had people just 
speak the truth of scripture to us very, very well. But we didn't see a lot of it tied in, like, missiology and theology were kind of yeah. segmented into these totally different categories. And so some of the missiological practices were divorced from, like, thinking about how theologically it um, it should be done. And so that's one thing specifically my husband feels very passionate about is these two things need to be done in conversation with one another. And so the job specifically was to teach missiology and theology. Um, and that's just one piece that he really is passionate about, seeing those two worlds bridged together and working in tandem and not divorced from one another. Um, just because, honestly, we saw a lot of bad practices on the field. Um, and so, and I think a lot of that just being out of the fact that these two things are being separated. Yeah. So that was kind of how he ended up coming home. Yeah, so that makes sense. And you guys are so good at that. And I love your heart for the people that you're, it's not like you just left that and then came home to be a wife and a mom. You're investing in people with the refugees that you're working with. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And it definitely shows in your heart for help mobilizing other people to go. Thank you. Okay, so when you look back on your time mm -hmm. on the field, what would you say some of the greatest struggles parenting would be? I think during our time on the field, we had a lot of, we had our little kid years while we were there. Um, the throes of discipline. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think I would say more, more so something that I observed and also this tendency that I, I felt in myself was to live in these two extremes. And I think it was easy to be on social media and honestly see all of the incredible opportunities that our friends' kids were having in, living in the States and feeling like I was depriving my kid of like their little kid years of going to fun soccer games or taking vacations at the beach or things like that. Yeah. And so I think there's one pitfall of just constantly mourning the life that you think you owe your kid yeah. um, and believing that lie. And I think that that's one danger. And I think the other danger that we saw was um, almost sacrificing people, sacrificing their kids at the altar of ministry mm -hmm. and um, and really being willing to um, to do anything for the sake of the gospel. But when it came to the call of parenting and discipleship of kids, that that something has to be sacrificed. And so that being something that was a, a quick thing to go. And so, honestly, we found ourselves at, in those extremes, honestly, back and forth. And so I think finding that middle ground of, like, no, as parents, as Bo's mom, like, you were called to, to disciple him and love him and share the truths of the gospel and to convince him that, like, Jesus is better than anything. And, um, and so just to find that happy balance of, hey, we are doing this and we're explaining the reasons why we live in the place that we live and that... Um, yeah, that we're doing this because out of love and obedience to Jesus, mm -hmm. but also giving them the joys and the fun experiences that life in the Middle East right. do, like did provide um, and allowing them to to enjoy those pieces of life and culture and know that like they really aren't missing out, like they're okay. Yes. Um, and so anyway, I think walking that balance was honestly, was hard. And I think... Um, I think it's easy to go into one of those two extremes. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. It's You can fall into the extreme of, woe is me. Mm -hmm. I don't get to do the things. I don't get to see my grandparents. I don't right. get to play water polo or mm -hmm. do whatever. Yeah. 
kind of missing out on all these. Or you have the other part of you are a privileged son and daughter of the king. You get yeah. to do this with your parents. What a yeah. privilege. Yeah. And so I think to find that, um, push them towards the, this is something, a privilege that you get to be a part of right. instead of the victim that you're not getting to be what everybody else is in America yeah. or your home passport country. Yeah, um, for sure. And that is definitely something that you want to paint into your kid too. But I also see the struggle of the parenting side of it where, you know, you can go full force into ministry and do free range parenting and not care for your kids, but care for the people at the right. sacrifice of your children. Right. Or you have the everything is about them, exactly. which if that's the case, then why are you even there? Yeah. As yeah. a wife and a mom, it would be so easy to say, I can homeschool my kid at home. I can yeah. go back with where grandma and grandpa are and be around family. If if my identity is only in what I am as a mom yeah. and a wife instead of as a, you know, worker and a daughter of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Which daughter of Christ would be first, but yes. Right. And Nina, you brought this up, and I think what you said this is a really, really key point, um, and it's also a hard one to navigate because it's really kind of opening up family philosophy and how, like, how do you do family life on the field? Um, and so I said this before, but, like, that this is something that I would wholeheartedly believe and say, like, hey, if you are going as a family, as a husband and wife, and you have children, you as a wife are a part of this. Like, you are there as a missionary you have been assigned I think this is where it gets different than like a pastor's and a pastor's uh, like a pastor and a pastor's wife yeah. this is a situation where like you're going and part of your responsibility as a missionary is to be involved in the work and so again I think that there's grace for seasons and I think sure. that there's certain seasons of life that it looks different and it looks less honestly but I think the push to continue to try and be an active part of what God's doing overseas is something that it's something that I always encourage people like don't lose that vision um because like you said then you want to go home then there is like okay you there yeah why 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 am I doing this um so anyway I also think there is a level when you kind of have that mentality there's a level of trust when hours are limited that I can see and look back on the Lord gave when we had three really, really tiny babies and there was very limited hours in my day specifically that it just put a whole new level of dependence on the Lord of like, Hey, I might have two to three times a week this, this, you know, this week where I'm spending an hour with women. Okay, Lord, I need you actually to bring me a woman who is seeking you. And so it was a really sweet time to be like, he answered those prayers. And some of the times where I was the most fancy, like I could do whatever because I had all the time in the world. Like, I think I was dependent on myself more so for what I could produce. And it just was in the time, in the seasons of life where you have limited time, but you have an abundance of time to pray and ask the Lord to do what only he can do. I think that there is a special dependence that is produced. Um, yeah. And so, but I think, there needs to remain a vision of I am a part of this work. I am yep. a missionary as well. 
Right, 100% agree. And yes to the praying before you go out and um, giving your day to the Lord. I remember there are times where I didn't necessarily have a plan. I just had a couple free hours. Yeah. And I just pray, Lord, who do you want me to talk to today? And yeah. there was not one time, I can tell you, Emily, that I came yeah. home discouraged. That's awesome. Every single time I came home encouraged and what the Lord had done. And all the more glory to him mm-hmm. for that. So Yeah. That he cares about those things. Mm-hmm. So sweet. Um, okay, so I have two more questions for you. The okay. first one will be, what was some of the biggest struggles you faced on the field? Like mm-hmm. looking back and then not just in parenting, but in, in yeah. overall in your time there, what would you say kind of triggers your memory of this is this was a real big struggle for me? And it yeah. could be in any category. Okay. Um, And the other one would be, what would be some of the greatest joys you faced? No, those are both good questions. Um, I think, uh, frankly, I probably kind of quietly went into life overseas. And I would have never verbalized this to anyone. But I think I had the mentality that, hey, I'm doing this for you, Lord. Like, I'm not living the American dream like all my friends. Like, my life looks really different. And so, therefore, to some degree like other suffering should not enter into our lives. And so that was something that I think had somebody asked me, like asked me directly if I thought that I would have been like, no, absolutely not. But I think it was just something that internally I kept as this like, Hey, we're doing this for you. Like, don't, you know, don't let anything catch us off guard kind of thing. And so about one year into our time overseas, we we were pregnant and it was our first child and we got a diagnosis while we were overseas that our like our child probably had a day to a month to live. Um, and so it was during that season where we had about four months where I was I carried him full term um, where I was pregnant with him. But we also knew this was going to probably be the end result of his life, mm-hmm. that it was just a really huge wrestling with the Lord over, Hey, like we're here, like we don't have anything like we're like, we're just doing this for you. And like, why would you do this to us? And, and it was a struggle. And I feel like all of the pieces of, um, of things that you kind of had mastered theologically of who God is and his role and the role of suffering, I think all came to bear of like, okay, this, this is actually our life now. Um, and so, I think that piece and that season of life while we were overseas, but still grieving a lot, um, was a huge, just a season of wrestling with the Lord. Um, I can also look back at it as simultaneously the hardest, but also the sweetest season of just communion with him. And I think because we were so simultaneously desperate for him to walk with us and to be near to us just because daily it was, it was so hard. Um, I think that season of life, I would say walking in a season of suffering but also doing it openly with people who don't who don't know the lord and their their understanding of death and the reasons for why bad things happen look very different um it was just hard um however we got to do it with people that we love and we had a lot of support around us at the same time but it's just never easy when when all of a sudden the suffering that you read about or you hear about hits home and you're walking through it personally. And so I think that was probably the hardest time for us overseas. I think um, probably our greatest joy was 
two like twofold things like during those during that season honestly of grief in our life and honestly there was a lot of just turmoil and unrest in the country that we were in um we got to see the Lord doing a ton of things in a handful of different women and so I think that there is a sweetness when you can see okay I'm I am just doing what I, I can do. I'm reading and studying the word with someone, but it's the actual work of the spirit convincing them that this, that Jesus actually is the way, the truth and the life and watching that work of like the miracle of conversion happen is something that is unbelievable. And I think at the same time, it almost seems so impossible. And it was something yes. that like, I think when we started and especially during language, I was like, Lord, do you actually do this? Like, are you actually going to do this? And so I think having the gift of being able to watch the Holy Spirit change someone's heart and set them, set their life and honestly their future kids' lives on a totally different trajectory than all of their ancestors um, is a gift to be able to, to be able to see. And I would say it's a gift whether you see that overseas or in the States. Um, just watching the Holy Spirit work in someone's life is a big, big deal um, I think another, another joy for us was teaming. Um, and, and I think it kind of gets, I think people say like team makes or makes it or breaks it. And so, again, I said this earlier, but being able to team well with people that we love, um, was a huge joy for us. Let's go back to the harassment you mentioned. You said that, um, as you would go out without your daughter, that mm -hmm. you would get harassed by men. What does that look like in that part of the world as a woman to daily live with that? Yeah, it's a good and it's a hard question. And honestly, I think it it's a tricky thing to answer because I see now my husband and I are bringing students over to that the same part of the world that we used to live in. And I can see harassment affects people very differently. And so I simultaneously don't want to overplay it or underplay it. Um, and so I think I had been warned, hey, this is a thing that you just are going to have to live with. And so to be honest, it didn't bother me. And I think maybe, maybe it should have bothered me more than it did, but it was just something that I expected. It was something that um, I think in my brain, I was just like, okay, these, these men don't know the Lord. Like, why not? You know? And so I think I just had kind of put that in that category. Yeah. Um, I would say I could, I could see when I came home, okay, it did, it did have more effect on me than I probably wanted to admit just in the sense of it still to this day takes me longer to trust like good intentions in men. Um, however, I can see people, co people come over and maybe if they spend six to eight weeks in the Middle East and they experience some of that, it really can, it it can require like coming back and getting some counseling and debriefing through, um, through that. And so I think depending on, depending on your personality, depending on just how, I think how it wounds you, I think it, the steps that it takes to just make sure that you're healthy and, um, you have a healthy view of men, um, coming out of it is, is important to just watch and be careful. So I think that there is nothing, and I would advocate for women when they come home, if that's something that I think you need to get some help and just kind of work through and talk through, I would highly advocate just to make sure that it's easy to let your heart grow hard. And it's easy to, it's easy to become bitter, even if you think you're not. Um, 
And so I think just being able to talk through that stuff and make sure that is not happening is a huge part of just keeping your heart soft and tender to what the Lord is doing. Yeah. Well, that totally makes sense to me as there were times where we faced persecution in the tribe and um, I just remember thinking, I, I never felt like I wanted to leave. I just right. remember thinking, of course, they're not believers. Yeah. yeah. And there's an enemy out there who don't doesn't want them to know the Lord and they're so blinded. I mean, for centuries, these mm -hmm. people have been blinded to the truth and they're steeped in it down to every fiber of their being. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to take a work of the Lord to change that. And yeah. so, of course, there's going to be a struggle. Yeah. And it's just the when there's darkness, you know, and you're a light there, it's not going to be easy. But culturally speaking as well, there were times where, I mean, you just don't look other men in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And you are careful where you sit and how you sit and how you walk, how loud you laugh. Mm -hmm. um, all these things you just have to be mindful of. And it can become, I would call it culture weary. Like you kind yeah. of go through culture shock when you get there. Mm -hmm. And then you have like culture stress, you know, when those big events happen. But then I think the day-to-day -day things when you're like constantly having to think through something that's against yeah. your own home culture and yeah. how you grew up and your worldview to um it just becomes weary yeah and I think those things can kind of wear on you I remember coming home and just running <laughs> yes I could go somewhere by myself yeah. it doesn't matter what I looked like I could wear shorts and a tank top and be just fine and yeah. nobody cared that I was there um and just having that freedom but it does wear on you for a while like if you if you're not careful, I think that's one thing I always encourage people to to make sure you're getting breaks yeah. from the culture, mm -hmm. and then um, sometimes you when you're in it it feels so heavy, and then you mm -hmm. come out of it and you can go back in and go okay this isn't as much as I thought I can right. do this again, right. but to get those breaks are super helpful. But yeah, culture that it can definitely be hard, and then to add the harassment side of it. Um, sometimes we tell people just expect it yeah. be okay. it's okay like they're not believers it doesn't mean that you you don't have to wear the victim yeah hat yeah you can put it aside and know that this is just something in an event that happened it doesn't define you mm -hmm. I think or mold you yeah. although sometimes I know it, it does wear on people and depending on the person mm -hmm. and whether or not so I don't mean to make it blase or mm -hmm. Um, yeah. seem unfeeling towards that. But I think there's a preparedness that you kind of have to go into to set yourself up for the best case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's that fine line, I think, and every person is different, like you said. Yeah. But and I think not to, like, put a plug in for radius or anything <laughs> like that. But I do think that there is an element, like, if you are prepared well and if there's certain – if you are trained in a way that – especially, I think, when you're – with a group of people getting preparation and training and just knowing like, I'm not alone in this. Like there is this group of people who we may be going to different parts of the world, but we're probably all facing similar things at similar times. Like there is just a preparedness that you can have um, for those kind of things that may blindside you. You may react totally different than you expect to react. But, um, yeah. 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 It definitely is for sure helpful. Um, sorry, I lied. I have, do have one more question okay. for you. <laughs> what would you say to women who are considering going to the field 
who just aren't sure if there's a need for them. Hmm. Um, I hear people say, I don't know. Well, one, I don't know if this is something that the Lord has for me, but the other is, I don't know if there's a need for me overseas. Yeah. What would you say for a woman asking about that? If if there's a need for them to go. There's a need for them to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think there, I said this before, but honestly, 50% of the world, I think right now, statistically, is female. And I think, and especially in some of the most closed areas of the world, and I can say this confidently with North Africa and the Middle East, women are going to reach women. Um, Men are not going to be able to do that. And so there's a massive need for single women and for married women to go and um, live and work and share and sacrifice. And so I would say the need is just as great for for men and women um, in overseas work. I think it clearly looks different. Um, I did not work with um, North African pastors. Like my husband did a lot of that. He did a lot of the business setup. But honestly, um, I feel like as a woman, I got to reap the benefit of them having to do, my husband having to do a lot of this really, really hard, tedious work because I got to live in the fruit of it of, hey, I'm, I'm going to work in this business that you set up and I'm going to use this to meet women and to access them and to be able to share with them. And so... Yeah, the need is great. Really, thank you for being here and pouring into the students. We appreciate you and Matt so much. And thank you for all that you're teaching and encouraging them. The students have loved spending time with you. So thank you. And please come back. Okay. (laughs)